are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're continuing our exposition in this book and looking at chapter 2. And tonight we're focusing in on verses 18 through 29. You'll find this on page 1029 of the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 2. Verses 18 through 29. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Well, this is the longest of the seven letters written to the smallest of the seven churches. Thyatira was not a great city, but it was important for ancient commerce. It was a center of trade, especially for the royal color of purple. You may remember that Thyatira was the hometown of Lydia, a seller of purple and a convert of the Apostle Paul. She was in Philippi, the town where she then lived, when she heard the apostle, and as he taught, that says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. With the commerce came an extensive network of trade guilds, or what we might call unions. And the city's chief deity was Apollo. Emperor worship was almost non-existent in Thyatira, surprisingly. If you wanted to get ahead in the world in Thyatira, you had to be a member of a trade guild. As in Pergamum, so here, each guild had its own patron god or 
guardian. Members would eat common meals in the temple and they would offer sacrifices to their particular god. And their social functions really amounted to drunken revelries in which everybody was expected to join. If a man refused, he was subjected to ridicule, isolation, and or persecution. So a person had only two options. You join a guild or you're blackballed. <laughs> That's it. And apparently some in the church at Thyatira pled for compromise with the world's standards. After all, a man has to eat. He has to provide. What else can a person do? The superiors made the rules. What were the inferiors supposed to do? At least that was the running theme. So we find out in the title of Christ in verse 18, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. And once again, our Lord describes himself using imagery that's drawn from chapter 1. And yet here he is called not the Son of Man, as he was in chapter 1, but here he's called the Son of God. Because the severity of the impending rebuke required the authority of God to be stressed. He is the eternal Son of God. He is of one substance and equal with the Father. And if anybody has a right to instruct and critique a church, it is the Son of God. His eyes are like a flame of fire, which I believe symbolizes his divine omniscience. Fire is used in Scripture to purify metal, and to light up darkness, and to overcome evil. For example, Isaiah 33, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? With his fiery vision, Christ is able to pierce and penetrate every concern. Open and laid bare even are the most secret things that are hidden in the deepest recesses of the human soul. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, according to the apostle in Hebrews chapter 4. He searches every heart. He sifts through every thought and he accesses all the veiled secrets of every human being. And those blazing eyes signify both his anger against sin and his familiarity with the depths of our souls. Just think of the awful penetration of that holy gaze stripping us of all false confidence. Nobody can stand before the Lord without being completely vulnerable. Hebrews 10 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's who we have here. The omniscient Christ knows you and he knows me. He knows all things about us, both good and bad. Spurgeon said one time, one of the greatest tests of experimental religion is this. What is my relationship to God's omniscience? He knows it all. Do you shrink from the thought of the Lord peering deep into your soul? In Matthew 9, the scribes grumbled and it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? 
And you know something, to sincere Christians, this is a great comfort because he does know everything. (laughs) But to the unbelieving sinner who suppresses the truth, this is a terrifying reality. The wrath of him who knows everything is fierce and frightening to his enemies. It also tells us that his feet are like burnished bronze, which I believe symbolizes his omnipotence. Not only does he know all things, but at the same time, he wields all power. He makes promises and he issues threats. And he can both fulfill and enforce any one of them. Among the ancients, bronze and brass, they were considered one of the most durable of all metals. And Christ's feet of brass or of bronze have been superheated in the furnace of suffering. And he is an omnipotent God who endured the infinite wrath in our place and for our good. And with those mighty feet, he comes in judgment to trample upon his enemies. He is strong and he's stable and he's firm and he's ready for action and he is able to overthrow evil. And Job tells us the thunder of his power, who can understand? That's power. As a mighty king, he's able to subdue all things to himself. In fact, he is invincible. And nowhere is his omnipotence displayed more vividly, I believe, than at the cross. Ephesians 1 says, God put all things under his feet, feet of burnished bronze, and gave him his head over all things to the church. And in the glory of victory, he tread the winepress of his father's wrath, And in that same glory, he's going to come to trample all of his and our enemies. And do you remember back in chapter 1 how the vision of Jesus affected John? It says, and I quote, he fell at his feet as though dead. That was to be expected in the majestic presence of the glorified Christ. How would you react if you saw eyes like fire and divine feet like glowing metal? It must have been a terribly frightening thing to be confronted with the glorified Lord. Any vision of God in this life will produce the feeling of unworthiness, the deepest sense of unworthiness. When Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne, all he could say was, woe is me, I am undone. When Ezekiel witnessed the glory of the Lord, immediately it says he fell flat on his face. And as we said, when John saw the glorified Christ, he fell prostrate as if he was dead. Indeed, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the question tonight is, do you know him as your friend or as your foe? That's an important question to answer and resolve. So this Christ... This all-knowing and all-powerful Christ addresses the condition of the church in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. He's fully aware of their situation, and he sees the fruit of their faith. And how comforting is it that Christ knows all the details of each one of our lives? You see, Thyatira had persevered and made great progress in several areas. And the Lord praises the evidence of genuine grace. They had high moral character. They were fervent in love. They were faithful in service. They were constant in their faith and enduring in their patience. 
Regarding things that were good and noble, they had been advancing admirably, and these were matters for congratulation. It was like a light shining in a dark place. A visitor, I think, would have likely considered them faithful, loving, spiritually healthy, even sweet. But he who searches the hearts and he who sees all things points to a very dangerous flaw. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And you see, what had happened was the church had been contaminated by doctrinal error through the seductive influence of this evil woman. You remember who Jezebel was. She was the daughter of a Sidonian king. She became the wife of the northern king Ahab, and she was a wicked woman. And the downfall of Israel, at least the northern kingdom, was due in large part to her influence. She introduced idol feasts that led to immorality and corruption among all the Israelite youth. And she left behind a legacy of whorings and sorceries of idolatry and witchcraft. And the woman who was corrupting the church in Thyatira was apparently just as evil. She introduced and promoted all sorts of idolatrous rituals and immoral practices under the guise of religion. Think of that. Under the guise of religion, she infiltrated the church to exert her wicked influence, and she made claims to prophetic powers. It seems that she had a dynamic personality. Don't be so legalistic, church, that you avoid the guild. Just a little compromise doesn't hurt, since after all, you have to provide for others, right? Doesn't God say moderation in all things? And besides, it's important to experience a certain degree of sin so that you can understand the culture. And isn't it fascinating how such seductive teaching is laced with truths? To compromise meant to engage in pagan practices or what's called here the deep things of Satan. And for this woman, the concerns of the world were far more important than the claims of Christ. She talked about forbidden things, and she weakened respect for God's law, and she strengthened the audacity to stand against the word of God. Solomon asks us in Proverbs 6, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Don't tamper with evil. No one can sin and escape misery. Nobody. It's impossible. If a church especially doesn't resist, the Holy Spirit will eventually withdraw his gracious influence. Owen Thomas says this, If there was such force in temptation when there was nothing but holiness in the mind, speaking of Adam, what must be its power to a creature that is already depraved? The bias of our nature is towards sin. The original propensity of our minds is in the direction of evil. Here lies the danger of playing with temptation. Pushing the envelope. Coming right up to the edge. We're told that the wages of sin is death. Sin is always accompanied by the stench of death. And the Son of God, the King and Head of the Church, knows the condition of this church. He who has eyes like a flame of fire cannot be deceived by her guile. He with feet like burnished bronze is able and ready to trample her underfoot. 
He knows her thoughts, he sees her heart, he searched the depths of her soul, and this Jezebel had spurned his grace and tried his patience by refusing to repent. So he threatens to cast her on a sickbed, let her suffer slowly. He will throw her into tribulation and strike her children dead. Why? So that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. Isn't it striking? The strongest rebuke that he gives her here is not because of her perversion. It's not because of her deceit. As bad as these things are, they are not the worst of Jezebel's wickedness. Christ's most severe censure is reserved for her soul's impenitence. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, let's face it, we all sin, every one of us. Sometimes you and I sin grievously, heinously. Sometimes we sin badly. What sets apart a sincere Christian is not the sin. It's the genuine repentance that follows. A true believer grieves for and hates his sin, and he always repents. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And that's what distinguishes a true believer. It's not sinlessness. It's repentance. The Christian has been joined to Christ and filled with his spirit, and so he has to repent. Turning from sin and trusting in Christ is clear evidence of regeneration. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 7, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. And this woman apparently would not turn away from her sin. She refused to repent. So Christ threatened to bring heavy judgments upon her and her followers. The doctrine of repentance is foundational to Christianity, Hebrews 6, verse 1. Jesus came when he preached, and the first thing he said was, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the Christian turns from sin. He resists it. He fights against it. He mortifies it. And believer and unbeliever are alike in sin. We all sin. But again, as I said, the difference is true repentance. It involves turning toward God who extends mercy in Christ. Because you see, turning away from sin by itself is not enough. Judas did that. He turned from his sin. The prodigal son not only left the pigsty, but the prodigal son also returned to his father. Most of you probably have never heard of Kenneth Clark. Some of you older folks might have. Kenneth Clark was the British host of a TV series called Civilization. He lived and died apart from Christ. While visiting a church on this show, he had this overwhelming religious experience. This is what he wrote. My whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had known before. But the gloom of grace, as he described it, created a problem. 
It says if he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew he would have to change. His family might think he had lost his mind. And maybe that intense joy would prove to be an illusion. So, he concluded, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. And he died in his sins. I have no doubt that now, if he had been given grace and the opportunity, he would repent. (laughs) Let us never delay repentance or resist the Holy Spirit because it may be the only chance we ever get. There was that one thief who repented on the cross so that none need despair. And there was only one thief who repented on that cross so that none need presume. Thyatira was charged not with complicity in Jezebel's teaching, but with tolerance. We live in an age of tolerance. Leaders allowed her teaching and influence to poison the congregation. The corrupt doctrines led to corrupt lives because creed and conduct are linked inseparably. A man is what he believes. And hence, we all need a good foundation. That's the benefit of catechizing, if I have to say it again. Not salvation. Catechizing is not salvation, but it is laying a foundation. It's putting logs in the hearth. And Ephesus had no discernment, but they had zeal. I'm sorry, Ephesus had discernment, but they had no zeal. Here in Thyatira, they had zeal, but no discernment. Like the Jews of whom Paul said, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so the Lord had given them a sword, which is the word of God, but they did not know how to use it. And I don't understand it. How was it that this otherwise commendable church could fall prey to the influence of this woman? It's unlikely that such an active and hardworking church could tolerate blatant falsehood. You see, Jezebel had subtle charms. And her false teaching seemed just plausible to the flesh. She called a prophetess. You know, prophets were revered for their charismatic gifts, not necessarily their Christian character. In the early church, they were held in high esteem. But John says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is often difficult to apply. Wolves are shrewd, they're gifted, they're intimidating. Sometimes we feel like we can't say anything because they know more than we do. It's hard to test somebody who has greater gifts and superior ability and a dynamic personality. The nature of a teacher is known by his or her whole course and tenor of life and influence. And so we're told by Jesus, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Watch how they live. See what they do. And note the effect that their teaching has on those around them. You'll know them by their fruits. Thyatira, in short, was a sentimental church. They put feelings over facts. They put relationships over truth. 
Their overactive emotions left them vulnerable to error and seduction. They made personal feelings do the heavy lifting that moral convictions should do. That's sentimentalism. Sympathy for others at the expense of obedience. And it's rampant in our culture. They liked the woman Jezebel. She made them feel relaxed, comfortable, appreciated. So Ephesus was lagging, Smyrna was little, Pergamum was lax, and Thyatira was libertine. They were neither fixed nor self-confident nor dogmatic about the truth. They were guilty of being far too emotional, feelings over substance. They needed to cultivate a deeper reverence for the word of God. With flaming eyes, Christ saw it, and with glowing feet, he threatened to crush it. As for the faithful remnant, no further burden would be placed upon them. They were only to hold fast what they had until he came. Hold fast to my word. That which you have is good. Tighten your grip. Because small errors can lead to big sins. As we're told, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the condition of the church. But then he closes with the promise of God. To him I'll give authority over the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and I'll give him the morning star. So to the believer who perseveres in faith, Christ promises an ample reward, as he always does. And we have to recognize what's behind this. You see, Rome was the only power on earth that really ruled the nations with a rod of iron. So great and powerful was that Roman Empire that they smashed others like pottery. It was easy. But here we have Christ's promise for a far greater, more terrible, and irresistible power. John saw a male child in Revelation 12 who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and you know who that is, Jesus Christ himself. And as disciples of Christ, we'll share in the same kind of experience as our master. We'll endure the same treatment on earth and we'll share the same triumph in heaven because we're told by Paul, if we endure, we'll also reign with him. And we'll receive the bright morning star who is Jesus Christ himself. The Lord is our primary good and our chief treasure and our greatest prize. I hope you believe that tonight. Knowing him is eternal life. He satisfies the deepest longings of the heart. Paul says in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if we love and trust him, we're promised that we'll reflect his glory and shine with his brightness and share in his regal splendor. And there is no reason for us to envy the worldling who has this world's comforts. Our portion is better and surer and sweeter and best of all, it's everlasting. Does this not show you and I the need for a familiarity with and loyalty to God's word? Christians have to be balanced. We have to navigate between a rock and a hard place, as it were. We have to avoid the skilla of a lifeless formalism and the charybdis of an ignorant enthusiasm. We must not be like the Pharisees who thought the Bible itself gave eternal life. We must be like the psalmist who says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
We must know the truths of Scripture, and we must know them experientially. How do you view the Word of God? Going to this church, I can imagine what you would say. But in your quiet moments, on your own, how do you view the Word of God? How does your practice answer that question? Henry Scudder tells a story. It's the story of a blind girl who, when her fingers became calloused, she cut her fingertips to make them more sensitive so she could read. But this only made them harder, and she could not read her Bible at all. At last, he says, after bitter weeping, she kissed her Bible farewell, and to her intense joy, that kiss revealed that she could read the raised words with the touch of her lips. After that, she kissed into her soul that precious word of God. We need to love the word of God. In this age of tolerance, we must also perform the duty of ecclesiastical intolerance. Hebrews 12 advises, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Like noxious weeds, this type of influence is a poison to the life of a church. And if it's permitted to grow, such bitter roots, such sinful examples will destroy the whole body. Jezebels must not be allowed to contaminate the body. Their influence fosters division, contention, instability, and bad reputations. And the shepherds must exercise oversight and encourage accountability. When someone begins to depart from the gospel, it's not an isolated event. It's not. It affects the whole body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Rarely, if ever, does a departure stop with the individual person. Almost always it has adverse effects upon other members who are defiled. John Owen even said back in his day, from small imperceptible beginnings they will grow and increase to the worst of evils, so the church must contend for the faith. We must have the strength of conviction. We're not a spiritual Gestapo, Viewing each member with suspicion, that's not what it's about. We have concerned shepherds who guard the flock from bitter roots. And there are very few who enjoy exposing bitter roots. Fewer like to discipline, so let's be proactive. Let's get involved in each other's lives. Let's know and care for one another. There is a saying, and you know it, you've heard it many times, the only thing necessary for bad men to succeed is for good men to do nothing. It begins in the heart. We weed out sin. We're intolerant with ourselves. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.